In the annals of human history, we encounter figures who stand in, in contrast to one another. We find so many stories of contrast embodying uh, the dual nature, nature of humanity. The tendency that we have to do good or to do evil. And we we're going to consider two characters in history whose paths crossed during the infamous World War II. One will sound familiar to you, the other one not so much. But they were living at the same time, in the same place, in the same circumstances. One is Adolf Hitler, and the other one is Oskar Schindler. Every time that we hear the name Adolf Hitler, the mere mention of his name brings images about unspeakable horror, a dictator whose twisted ideology and his crooked policies led to the loss of millions of lives, including the systematic extermination of uh, six million Jews. Hitler's legacy is one of despair, a never-ending ripple of suffering that tore families apart, that shattered communities, and left nations in ruins. The other side of the coin is Oscar Schindler. And maybe you probably hear that name because there is a movie based on a book, The Schindler's List. I would encourage you to watch it. He was a German industrialist. Even though at the beginning he was uh, a selfish man driven by profits, he underwent to a profound moral awakening, especially when he was observing at the time the atrocities that was happening in his country. So he decided to transform his factory into a sanctuary for Jews to work tirelessly to protect them. He did it behind the scenes, and more than 1,200 souls were saved from the group of death. Schindler, through his choices, he lit a candle, a candle of hope for life in a world that was surrounded by darkness and shadows. Why do I bring these two names to your attention this morning? Because they serve precisely as a perfect example to give you a, as an introduction to our study in Romans 5 verses 12 to 21. This is a passage that dives deep into humanity's spiritual odyssey, from condemnation to justification, from the consequences of Adam's choices to the results of Christ's sacrifice. In essence, this is a journey from an eternal loss to an eternal gain. And this is precisely the main idea of the sermon this morning. One man's failure brought humanity's fall. 
but one man's fix bought humanity's favor. So this is the statement that encapsulates the transformational power given to all humans by God since the beginning of creation. The power of volition, the power of choice. One choice can either condemn us or can save us. The result will be the type of choice that you decided to make. So before we delve in Romans 5, I want you to take note of something as an observation. We're going to read a, a, a passage in the scriptures that has a lot of words that are repeated. And when in the Bible you find words that are repeated over and over, you need to pay attention to those words. For instance, there is one word that you read a lot, and it's the word one. Appears 11 times in this passage. The other word would be reign as ruling. Occurs five times, reminding us both that Adam and Christ, they had dominion over a constrained realms. And the third phrase that you will read repeatedly is much more. Is repeated five times and illustrates illustrate that we gain in Christ, what we have in Christ, what we gain in Christ surpasses all what you can imagine, all what was lost through Adam's choice. So as you open your Bibles, open it in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. We're going to turn to this enlightened passage. This chapter that will hope, I hope it will draw our attention to the key important things. We're going to be studying three things this morning. So pay attention because you're not going to see it on the screens. First, we're going to see how one man's failure brought humanity's fall. Those are going to be verses 12 to 14. Then we will discover that redemptive counterbalance of one man's fix that bought humanity's favor, highlighted in verses 15 to 19. And lastly, we're going to see the crown of this study by embracing Christ, who is the source of all our grace, in the last two verses, 20 to 21. Those are going to be the three points that we're going to start, so let's buckle up. This is a lot of exploration this morning, and we're going to be challenged, we're going to be uplifted, we're going to be, if we let the Word of God transform us in our way of thinking and become people who do better choices in life. Because your choice will bring consequences. It can be good consequences, it can be bad consequences, but the choice is yours. So with that in mind, let's start with the first one. One man's failure brought humanity's fall. In this passage, Paul is outlining the fundamental premise of the original sin, the sin committed right there in the Garden of Eden. When a choice was made that was contrary to God's desires, Adam disobeyed a very direct 
order from the Lord saying, Adam, you can enjoy everything from this garden. It's all yours. You and your wife can do whatever you want. Everything is yours except one thing. You see that tree that is in the middle of the garden? Please, don't come closer to that tree. Don't eat that fruit. It's the only thing that I'm going to ask you. You got thousands upon thousands of trees and all the fruit that you can imagine. But that one, that one is mine. Please don't touch it. Unfortunately, he made his choice. That happened to us. Those of you who have a small children or toddlers understand about choices and the choices that they like to make sometimes. Even they are little, you can see how stubborn they can be. And they will experience the choices that the parents will make as they try to correct them. So we're going to see this because Paul is arguing that sin entered into the world through one man. Adam, which led death entering through sin as well. One mistake. I don't know of you, but many times I've been thinking, when I go to heaven, I may see Adam there. I think, of course I'm going to see Adam. And I don't know what I'm going to do with him. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to feel the desire to punch him in the face or something. I say, man, what were you thinking? Because it's Genesis 3, all the way to today, we see the consequences of one wrong choice. So even though we experience a lot of situations in our nation with the polarization in politics, it's easy for us to blame one party or the other one. Don't blame them. Blame Autumn. <laughs> because that choice... And, and be careful, because here Paul is not mentioning Eve. Obviously, she's included. But Adam was responsible, because Adam was in the place that was next to Eve when the temptation came, and he didn't do anything about it. So Paul argues that sin entered into the world through one man, and through that sin, death. And then, because of that, we all have sinned. It has been transferred like a virus from generation to generation until today with all of us. So we are born in sin. And then we're going to read about the law. Contrary to what we may think, the law only functions as a magnifier class, showing us how bad we have, be- we have-, we have behaved or, we have- or how bad we are. So the topic of verse 12 is sin and death. In here, Paul is describing three downward steps that go from bad to worse in this situation. The first one is sin entered the world through one man. Verse 12, the first part says, therefore, that is another therefore. That's important. It's connecting ideas from the past to to what he's explaining. Remember, this is a letter, and a letter cannot be just fragmented and try to study by fragments. You need to study the entire letter. So he is bringing ideas that begin in chapter 1, and he continues with those ideas. So, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Let me stop right there. 
Adam is not named here. Paul is not concerned about necessarily with his name. What he is trying to explain to us is the origin of evil in general, but only with how that evil invaded the world of human beings, he's presenting this as an evidence. He says that evil entered through one man, that is, through his disobedience. How do I know this? I mentioned it to you a while ago, Genesis 3.6. When the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. This tree was the one condition that God says, don't do it but he disobeyed it. Secondly, death then entered the world through sin. One sin. As Adam was the door through which sin entered into the world, now sin is the door through which death entered into our lives. And so, verse 12, death spread to all men because all sin. You see, this is an allusion to Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 3.19, where death, both physical and spiritual, is said to be the penalty for the disobedience of men. The word death, when you read it in the Bible, means separation. That's what the word originally means. In this case, it can be spiritual death and eventual physical death, but also it's a distinction, a separation as we read here in Genesis 3, a physical separation from the garden, but also the spiritual separation of losing intimacy with God, which is exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. So sin and death are spread like a virus to the entire humanity. And sin infected all, everything, every aspect. And from their children to the children of the children until today, we all have been infected. That's why Paul says, all have sinned. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Why, 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 I, why I need to take the blame? Why should I be blamed for Adam's mistake? It happened years ago. I not even know the man. I was not even in the garden of Eden. I didn't eat the fruit. I didn't like fruit. I like fruits, but I didn't like fruits. So how can I be held accountable for something that happened that long time ago? And it's a question of fairness. It's not fair why he did. I, I had to be blamed. But it's important to understand one thing. Because as we recognize, we each reaffirm that we're connected to Adam somehow because of our own sins. We share the same rebellious nature and the propensity to sin against God. We are not merely judged for Adam's sin. We are merely judged for our own transgressions. What we truly need is not a debate about fairness. What we need is a plea for mercy. So how can we liable for Adam's sins? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul is offering two explanations. 
Because we are sinners by emulation, meaning we are imitating Adam. We do exactly what he did. And the reason why I was saying that when I see Adam in heaven, I'm going to try to do something, I think to myself, well, I may not do that because I, I'm in his shoes, or no, no, he didn't have shoes. I'm in his steps. I will not be, I will be doing the same. Actually, I haven't done the same. Over and over. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner because I was born a sinner, and I'm a sinner because it's my personal selection, election. So we are all sinners by birth, and we are sinners by choice. And that's what we share with Adam. Let me ask you this question. Do you think we sin because we are sinners? Or are we sinners because we sin? It's like the chicken and egg question. The answer is straightforward. We sin because it is our nature to sin. Let me illustrate it this way. Think about a dog. Does a dog bark because it's a dog? Or it's a dog because it barks? What do you think? Thank you. The dog barks because it is his nature to bark. You know, I know how to bark. It doesn't mean that I'm a dog. I might look like one sometimes. But not necessarily. So it's on the dog's nature to bark. Well, it's in our nature to sin. Because we are sinners by nature, by birth, by conception. David put it this way. I was conceived in iniquity, he says. In sin, my mother conceived me. That's the innate tendency towards sin that we have. That's the bent. You are a parent of little ones. You don't have to teach your child, your toddler, five, six years old. You don't, you don't have to teach him to lie, to rebel. It's something in that little being, human being, that is the tendency to do what is evil. You, you don't have to train him. He comes with it. The instructions are not included, by the way, but... But parenting largely involves correction, that innate nature. Not because the children have learned these behaviors, but because the nature is that. It's a natural inclination to sin. Consider Adam. He was given a straightforward command, do not eat. And what he did, he ate. Have you ever seen a sign that says, please do not touch? And what is your inclination? Why? He says, wet paint, do not touch. Uh, maybe it's dry now. Why, why, why I, I, do, I do that? It's my nature. You know, he said, do not enter. It's exactly, do not park here. And you see the parking. Do not walk through the grass. And we walk through the grass. Unless you are in Texas A&M, in that little place that everybody can Say something about you. There you go. Actually, I was doing it. I almost, almost put my feet into that thing, and I was stopped in time. So I didn't commit the cardinal sin. <laughs> so Adam couldn't resist the same way we cannot resist sometimes. 
This single act of Adam unleashed a ripple effect that we are still experiencing to today. Third, not only we learn that sin entered into the world and then after sin, death, now we see that death reigned before even the law was given, which is very, very interesting. Some people probably listening to Paul were thinking, as they were listening to him, how could Adam have seen when the law was not even existing yet, was not given yet? No law, no sin, and thus no death. So to that argument, Paul is saying the following, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigns from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Let me see if I can explain that riddle. This is probably one of the verses that the apostle Peter says, you know, I love my brother Paul, but sometimes I don't understand him. Okay, this probably is referring to this one. So Paul really smartly is, is saying something interesting. He observed that death was present even before the Mosaic law was given. Through whom the Mosaic law came? Through Moses. That was years later. When Adam and Eve were there, there was no law. While some people f- might think that the gods violate the moral law, I mean, some people probably violate God's moral law written in their hearts at the judgment, even though it was not written. It doesn't mean that was not happening. Let me put it this way. You know Noah's Ark story, the flood, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah. Something was happening to these people, and the law was not given yet. So death existed even before the law was given as a penalty for sin. So this could include a lot of stuff, a lot of people. So what Paul is underlining here is that we are not condemned because of breaking the law. We face judgment because we inherit a nature like Adam, a sinful nature. And this nature is confirmed by our own acts of sins. The law was introduced not because of sin, but to make us aware of our sinfulness to highlight the gravity of our sins and to drive us closer to God when we recognize that we are sinners. Let, let me put this example. I don't know if you ever are driving above the speed limit. I'm guilty. But, you know, even driving, I, I, I've been living three years in, in the Bryan College area. Even today, I use the GPS. Because sometimes, I don't know when the speed limit will change for 30 to 45 to 50 and to 30 again. In just a spare, in the same street, in a spare of a few blocks, things change. And I noticed that because of the police cars that are staying there. But no, because of the signs. So I had to learn to rely on my GPS because I don't see many speed limit signs. But imagine that, that you are always driving the same road and you are always driving to the speed that you want to. And in some ways, one day suddenly, there was a speed limit sign. You cannot go over 45. But you are normally go 50 or 60. But now you're conscious, you're seeing it. You're breaking the law and they're gonna give you 
a fine if they caught you doing that. This is what Paul is saying. There was not a speed limit. It doesn't mean that it was not existing, the condemnation or the punishment for sin, but when that law was given, now you're conscious and now you know exactly what is happening. So that's what the law is doing to us. It's showing us that we are sinners. So that term imputed here is an accounting term in Greek, which means to charge against one's account. And there was no excuse, even though the law was not given, there was no excuse because they knew really well what they should do or they shouldn't do. We read in the previous chapters that in their conscience, even the people who were not under the law, they were not Jews, they were Gentiles, they have in their moral conscience about doing good or evil. They knew. So they, in many ways, knew. So this is like a, the law serves like a, like a moral ledger, revealing the spiritual debt that we have. But in summary, the Mosaic law serves as a mirror that reveals the inheritance selfishness that we have. So that's one man's failure, bringing the entire humanities. Well, now we're going to see one man's fix about humanity's favor. This is the contrast. This is the man, the second Adam, that Paul refers to in other chapters. In verses 15 to 17, we read the following. We see the contrast that we see in the, in the different things. We, we can see three contrasts. One, the nature of actions, the spiritual consequences, and the experience of the results. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Adam's disobedience was a transgression, a defiant act against God's command. Christ's action, in contrast, was a free gift of grace. And he willingly died for our, uh, for in our place on the cross. While Adam acted as a self-centered rebellion, Christ demonstrates selfless sacrifice. So basically, we can see the contrast in their nature. Secondly, the contrast in the spiritual consequences, verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For one, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. As you can see, Adam's sin resulted in universal condemnation. All have sinned, everybody, making all humanity guilty before God. On the contrary, Christ's sacrifice led everybody to justification. Those who trust in him can be declared just, just or righteous in the Lord's eye, providing a way for humanity to be made right with God. These outcomes other actions are dramatically opposed. And the last one is experiential. Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So the consequences of Adam's actions is death and the reign of a spiritual and physical decay. 
Christ's gift, however, grant us life, setting up a kingdom where grace and righteousness will rule for eternity. So the dominion under which we live right now, either death or life, depends on our relationship with Jesus Christ. Even today, we have a choice to make. Are we going to be on the road to Adam or are we going to be on the road to Christ? Are we going to be on the Garden of Eden, enjoying the pleasures of the place and disobeying the Lord? Or are we going to be on the Garden of Gethsemane, letting God to do his will and not our will? So this is important because not only the contrast legacies of Christ and Adam is important, it's also a representation of the roles of these two men. In verse 18, we read, So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification, life to all men. One man sin, everybody is condemned. The good news is, one man was obedient. And one man sacrificed. Everybody, all people, can be saved to the action of one man. This is the interesting thing about and the hope that we have in the accomplishment of Christ. So the conditional nature of Christ's gift is important. Verse 19, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So no matter what the consequences, no matter how difficult was the situation experienced by Adam, think about the re rewards that we have when we trust in Jesus Christ. Both men acted as representatives of the human race. Number three and last one, we have trust in Christ because he is the source of our own grace. Paul is turning our focus on Christ alone. He emphasized the gift of Christ, the gift of grace. In regard to grace, he reveals two things. First, grace abounds. And second, great reigns. In verse 20, we read, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. Another version says, surpasses, superabound. So the law serves as a mirror of our sinfulness. The law serves as a spotlight illuminating the extent of the human sinfulness. But the setting of divine standard, it makes explicit the shortcomings that we have, our guilt. It acts as a precursor for the points to our desperate need for grace. But also grace abounds. Where sin increased, grace superabounded. Even more. Here the Greek term is telling us what signifies this term. Because sometimes we confuse. Some people might say, well, I will continue sinning so I can have more grace. That is abusing of grace. So it's important to understand this concept. What is he referring to? He is talking about that the grace of God is not just sufficient. It's all what we need to be able to compensate everything that we have lost with a choice made by Adam. Imagine a dam of water. Imagine grace as an 
inexhaustible river. And your sin is that dam that was built very high. And the river, the water flows and it's filling that huge dam. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I learned that there are two monumental dams in this country. The Hoover Dam in Nevada, built in 1935, is the largest structure on earth, or at least was at that time. Then there is the Orville Dam in California. It remains the tallest dam in the world, 754 high feet. I mean, 754 feet high and spanning a mile wide. The idea is this, what Paul is trying to say. No dam, is, no dam of sin you construct can ever be too high and too wide for God's grace to overflow because his grace is more than sufficient. No matter how sinful you can be, grace of God can cover those sins and forgive you for those sins. I know some of you think, well, you had no idea what I had done, Pastor. Well, I'll tell you, you had no idea what I have done. And I'm relying on this grace that because I don't deserve it, that because I don't earn it, it's freely given to me if I just place my trust in Jesus Christ. God is telling me that, God, that his grace reigns so that a sin reigns in death even so, grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is the objective of divine grace. God wants to save everybody who comes to him. He sent his son to die for the world. And whoever believes in him will not perish but receive eternal life. Grace is now sitting on the throne. Believe it or not, even the situation that we're facing today, grace is sitting on the throne where sin and death once reigned before. So the universal impact of grace, as we read it in different places, is that the abundance of the reign of grace assures us that the significant harvest of the soul that will be reaped. John Stott wrote, for grace forgives sins through the cross and bestows on the sinner both righteousness and eternal life. Grace satisfies the thirsty soul and fills the hungry with good things. Grace sanctifies sinners, shaping them into the image of Christ. Grace preserves even with their recalcitrant determined to complete what is, has to be done. And one day, grace will destroy death and consummate the kingdom. So when we are convinced the grace reigns, we will remember that God's throne is in the throne of grace and will come to it boldly, boldly and receive mercy and find grace for every of our needs. Paul is saying in this passage that when the first man, Adam, he closed by uplifting the other man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mentioned that Adolf Hitler and Oscar's children were in contrast, in opposite direction. Hitler, a man whose action led to a devastation and loss of mil millions of lives, reflects the overarching narrative of Adam, the man whose failure introduced sin and death into the world. On the other side, 
with a Schindler, whose life-saving efforts during the Holocaust stand in contrast much like Jesus Christ, the one who sacrificed but for grace, righteousness, and eternal life. One man's failure brought humanity's fall. One man's fix brought humanity's favor. What can we do to start reflecting that in our lives? Number one, acknowledge the fall. Acknowledge that you and I were sinners by birth and by election. Recognize that we are born in the same state that Adam was, became sinful, fallen, separated from God. Admit this first step toward redemption. Number two, accept that fix that Jesus Christ made. Believe in Jesus Christ, the one who came to fix what was broken, who paid the price on the cross so that we could be reconciled with God. Number three, live in grace. Not only receive from grace, but give in grace. Seek relationships with Christ. Study the Word of God. Engage in prayer. Participate in faith community events. Show the grace of Christ to others who don't deserve it. Not just the ones who are like you. And lastly, share the good news of the gospel. You've been moved from fault to favor. You got what it takes to show others what they need to change their lives. Unless your life hasn't been changed yet. Unless you don't believe the gospel yet. But if you do believe the gospel, show and tell. Show with the words, with your life, and tell with your words. Choose to live in the redeeming grace of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Move from fall to favor by acknowledging that you need him of every minute, of every second. Accept his sacrifice. I will invite you to stand as we pray together. You know, let's commit our time. Let's commit his word. And let's put in practice what we learned this morning. Heavenly Father, your grace leaves us with no words, speechless. We have a journey through the narrative of humanity's downfall. We started from Adam until marked by sin and, and distance from you. Yet we also celebrated the redemptive curve coming from Adam to the second Adam, your son Jesus Christ. We come to you, Lord, because we're fully aware that we are flawed. Our nature is like Adam's nature. It's tempting us to stray. But today, as we are listening to your word, may your word help us to mark our conscious decisions to embrace the salvation and the transformative power that Jesus Christ can offer. Let, let us choose your favor, Father, over our fall. Let, let us choose your grace over our guilt. And let us enjoy the eternal communion over the eternal separation. So, Father, in this new understanding of this passage, 
Don't let us be just mere listeners. Let us be participants of your divine plan. Show us what it takes, Father, to grow. We are eternally grateful for your sacrifice on the cross, for the cleansing power of Jesus Christ, for the promise of everlasting life, just for the faith that we have in his powerful resurrection. And as we leave this place, as we exit these doors, empower us to be ambassadors of this message of hope, to be people who can tell others how they can be safe. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to understand one more facet of this beautiful stone of your grace. And may that grace be upon all of us today. And through that grace, we glorify your son, Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.